Okay, and we are back from our break, ready to pick back up with our discussion of all things orthodoxy. And now that we're rested and ready to get back at it, I think the big question that we need to tackle at this point, Corey, is the economy of salvation. I think there are some very important differences between East and West and understanding how salvation works that would be important for us to discuss. So I think, well, Mark and Corey, I'll leave it to you. Do you have any recommendations on where, where it would make sense for us to start? I think Corey should just admit all the things they're wrong about. We can, we can, Perfect. We can move on from there. No one inspects. No one expects the Inquisition. Could, could I start with uh, Augustine as a heretic? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good that, point. That'll it's make a, a lot of fans. But it, it's a, it's a great point, right? It's true. Augustine dominates, um, especially from the but before the Reformation too. Oh, but sure, yeah. from the Reformation on, Protestants. Uh, evangelical, he's almost the only person they even quote, yeah. right? Especially young Augustine. They don't like mature Augustine, no. but young Augustine, right? right? Um, shortly after his conversion. Um, People like to pick and choose the parts of Augustine oh, that they like to listen to. Ridiculously so. But Augustine does no. not play a significant role at all in Eastern Orthodox. No. no not really, no. I mean, he, he is, to, to be fair, right, once you get past a lot of the, you know, the, the, the back and forth, he is, he is a saint. He is a saint in the church. He's on the calendar. Right. He, is a, he is a saint. Um, but does he play even close to the same role you know, in, in the life of the church, the Orthodox church, that he does in, in both Catholicism and the, you know, the Protestant churches? And the answer to that is no. Um, but even within the West, like, like Mark had just said, you know, he, he plays certain roles. He wears different coats, mm-hmm. right? Um, Catholics love him for his, 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 his sacramentality and his ecclesiology. Protestants love him for his anthropology, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, early Augustine, Confessions Augustine. They don't like it when Augustine starts talking about the Bishop of Rome and, and whatnot and, and bishops and priests. And that's where Augustine right. is a borderline Necessity heretic. thereof. Yes, right. You know, so, and like you said, it's sort of like it's this cherry picking. Yeah. Which is, in no offense to, you know, Protestant viewers or anyone else, but it's kind of the nature of Protestantism to, mm. to cherry pick, right? I mean, all the different denominations do it, right? The Reformed do it in their own way, and the Lutherans do it their way, and the Baptists do it somewhat the Reformed way, I guess, but their own way. <laughs> I don't, you know, depending so, on who you ask, right? Yeah, it depends who you ask. You know, the Pentecostals do it their way, um, but if they even know who Augustine is, right? That's that's the other issue, but. Um, but at the same time, I don't like a lot of the harping that that takes place in, in the Orthodox world on Augustine. I, I think sometimes it's it's done um, by think, people who have never actually read him. I think it would so. be helpful to take a step back <clears throat> and explain the context as to why uh, that harping takes place. Yeah, I mean it's it's complex, um, but one is the language. It's the language. Um, Augustine is well known. Um, to, to not have known Greek. Right. His Greek was not very good. Um, his Hebrew was not much better. Um, unlike Jerome. Unlike Jerome, right. right? And even Jerome made fun of him because of that, in he fact. He like several his letters, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but um, Augustine was, was truly, in every sense, a Latin theologian because Latin is all he worked with, right? Um, 
And Latin, unfortunately, was not an early language of the church, right? Aramaic was for the earliest Christians, to be sure, and then Greek. It's the lingua franca of the empire. Um, it's, it's the street talk of the early Christians. The vernacular. Right. You know, it's the, the, the language that the New Testament was produced in. And so um, Augustine didn't know it. And that leads to problems when you're trying to interpret text, right? And you're trying to prove a theology about whatever it may be mm. in this case, right? So um, there's a lot of differences um, that the Orthodox world would have with the way Augustine, for example, conceived of the Trinity, mm-hmm. right? Um, and also other ways in which he understood sin, <laughs> right? And original <coughs> sin, original guilt, mm-hmm. even, right? Um, Orthodox would say, no, he's, he's just wrong. And he's wrong because he doesn't understand the language, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand how to read Romans in Greek and what St. Paul is actually trying to say, for example, in Romans 5.12. Um, Which the so, um, recent um, <clears throat> Bishop Wright would uh, be pointing out, wouldn't he? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, Bishop, yeah I mean, yeah, N.T. Wright, for example, um, is... Well, this... See, everything that, that I think a good Protestant needs to understand, you know, where Orthodox are coming from on some of these issues and how they read the text, they have, right? I mean, you, you want to insist upon the languages, well, then get into the languages, right? And read Romans 5.12 in the Greek. It's, it's saying something very different from what it says in Latin, right? Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, in, in the Greek, the preposition where it says, um, you know, F-ho, in that all men have sinned, right? Well, the Latin changes it, and the Latin is in quo, in whom. Well, that changes everything, right? Because now you're essentially going into a theology in the latter, in the latter sense where you can actually go on and make an argument that all men inherit the guilt of Adam as well, right? Mm-hmm. And orthodoxy would say, no, we, we don't inherit Adam's guilt, right? There's an ancestral sin, right, that leads to death, but there, there's no original guilt, right? and that's... That's a problem because. So you would argue with do you with the tradition? Yeah. The West is doing eisegetics. Yeah, I would say I would say they're trying to justify holding on to, to, to someone, right? Um, I mean, look, you could take any of the fathers, and I might get in trouble here with even other Orthodoxes. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> the fathers weren't right about everything that they said, right? I mean, one of the big things, for example, that I get into with Orthodox all the time. Um, is you can take two saints, two fathers of the church, great fathers of the church, whom I love immensely, you know, whose intercessions I ask for every day, St. John Chrysostom and St. Ephraim the Syrian, mm-hmm. right? Good I mean, Ephraim the Syrian, I mean, this, this is someone, for example, Jerome said, if we lost all the biblical books and we were left only with the poetry of Ephraim, we would be just fine. I mean, think about that, right? Wow. Um, and that's Jerome, Right? Yeah. That's a Latin. It's no slouch. Right? No. And so, Friendly guy, too. Right. <laughs> Super nice guy. And so, um, but you can take those two, for example, and then you can take some other fathers, earlier fathers like Justin Martyr or Irenaeus, right, um, and see how they diverge on the interpretation of, say, Genesis 6, right, and who the sons of gods are, who the sons of God are, right, in Genesis 6. Ephraim and, and, and Chrysostom would say that they're um, of the line of Seth. They were, they were, they were kingly men. Hmm. Right. Well, Justin Martyr would say, no, that's, that's not what they are. They're actually angels who left their abode and came to earth and corrupted the earth, right? which is part of the reason why God became man, to take back what is his. Which is Irenaeus' point <clears throat> about 
he didn't know what he's talking about himself. But the fathers are, are com they're not complete under themselves, right? It's the councils that decide the truth that the fathers have sure. given as witness to yeah. the church, and so that that's the problem of of Reformation, post-Reformation Protestantism, just cherry picking things, yeah. and then Scotch taping it to their version of sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. Is that then you really don't even get the witness of the church's authority through council that's developed before the canon's even been codified. Yes, right. right. Yeah. And what's interesting also um, is if, if, let's say, for example, I'm speaking with a Roman Catholic about Romans 5.12, right, which happens. Um, I have these conversations all the time at Providence College, for example. And um, they'll say, well, how come Orthodox don't accept the Immaculate Conception? I said, because there's no need for it. If you're not born with original guilt, why does Mary need to be born without sin or without guilt? There's no guilt that gets carried on, right? And I've said the Immaculate Conception is based on an interpretation of Romans 5.12 that ignores the Greek and prioritizes the Latin. <laughs> and I said, so, you know, we're not doing it to be jerks or something because we don't love Our Lady. We, we love Our Lady very much. I mean, I would even argue that there's more reference to the Theotokos in our liturgy than there is in the Novus Ordo. Definitely not. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, She's not even there. Um, a quick interruption yes, for anyone who doesn't have a Bible nearby, Romans 5.12 from the ESV. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no yeah. law. And what's interesting is... is you know, the, the ESV, which is the English translation I use, I, I think it's the, the, the finest That's literal translation yeah. right out there right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that when they were doing the Orthodox Study Bible some years back, they went with the New King James Version instead of this, because hmm. um, I'm not a fan of the NKJV. But um, that right there is a direct literal translation it, of the it Greek. Is. Yeah. That's what right? we, when we were reading that common prayer book over the last 10 years or so, not that I had all the influence, but I, I insisted the ESV was going to be a yeah. trend. It's a great translation. It was even the RS. I mean, I still have, I think the RSV is better in some places, but particularly in Romans, I thought the ESV was the best translation. Yeah, yeah. And and Protestants will admit, say, well, yeah, that is the proper that is the proper translation and the proper reading of it. But the theology continues. Well, why does the theology continue then? If you're supposed to be dedicated to the text first, I mean, you guys, I say, you know. Your soul of scripture, that's it. How come you're just not doing what the text then says? Because you're reading the King James. Yeah, that, well, that's right. Yeah, they're reading the King James, right? And so, or, or the um, NIV. Sure, oh, yeah. Or the NSAV. Right, which are all inferior to the ESV, I would argue. But Oh, yeah, we can, well, <clears throat> we can go in. That would, that's another rabbit hole we don't need to go down. But, but thank you for quoting that, because we can forget that not everybody knows who we're talking yes. about. Yeah, yeah yes. we've said it my, a few times. Apologies. So uh, we, we've covered, I think, right where, in a broad sense, the Orthodox tradition stands on original sin. If we move forward with that, talk a bit about the work of Christ on the cross. How, where are there maybe divergences between how the Orthodox interpret and understand that versus mm -hmm. popular, popular, excuse me, evangelical and Protestant understandings where I think 
typically in common parlance, people will describe it in terms of a substitutionary penal atonement. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I always want to be fair when, when having these conversations about atonement because, you know, my fellow Orthodox, because atonement just does not really feature a whole lot in Orthodoxy, we don't know how to talk about it. Um, and we don't know how to talk about it with, with non-Orthodox whose traditions only focus on atonement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we, when we as Orthodox hear atonement, we immediately just, you know, zero in on penal substitution, right, and say, oh, it's terrible, and I, and I do, to be fair, think it's, it's problematic um, it, because it's saying something about God that as Orthodox, we just don't believe it's in God's nature to behave that way, right? Um, the church is not a courtroom. It's a hospital for sinners, as St. John Chrysostom says, right? Uh, we come to church to be healed, right? To heal ourselves, to heal our passions, right? And to work on ourselves, right? And, and to become, like St. Peter says, right? Partakers of the divine nature, and so um, when we understand, for example, Christ's work of redemption, we understand that God is truly becoming man, as as St. As Athanasius says, because we need to become like him, right? God became man so that mm-hmm. we might become not like God, but but God. That's, that's the literal Greek theosis. there. Theosis. Yeah, theosis, theosis right. you know, and that's, or deification. Theosis is safer to use, uh, I notice with Protestants because oh, you start oh, saying yes. deification, they start accusing you of yeah. being a pagan. Right. It's like, oh, so you're going to be like a god or something, and <laughs> like a Mormon. Right. Um, but but you know what's interesting though, you bring up Mormonism, is that you know Mormonism, or you know Joseph Smith, really more later Brigham Young, but they were able to get away with what they've got away with in terms of their their bizarre doctrine because. They were going back to the fathers and cherry-picking this idea of theosis, right? But they didn't understand it. And so they've gotten away with this idea of, of, you know, becoming your own god of your own planet when you die, which, of course, is is, is, a deviation from what the orthodoxy believes. But, you know, we do take very seriously the words of St. Athanasius. And he says, God became man in order that man might become God, right? Because that's the predicament, right? We're cast out of paradise, and we have to regain paradise Mm -hmm. again. It's not a situation, Orthodox would insist, of appeasing God's wrath or his sense of justice. Now that's Which, just to go back in order to properly define our terms, right, that's what we're talking about when we talk about, in a sense, penal substitutionary yes. atonement, that Christ is an atonement for sin yeah. whereby he bears the punishment of sin in our place. Yes, and you know, the Son is appeasing the wrath of the Father, right? Um, but also, again, like I said, to be fair, that, that isn't the only view of the atonement, especially in the early church. Um, you know, there are other theories of atonement. Um, there's recapitulation, right, in which the idea was very popular with St. Irenaeus, um, that what God is doing in Christ is that he's almost recreating everything, mm. right? Um, and then secondly, there's the ransom theory, which is very popular among many yeah. of the fathers, right? Um, but... I remember hearing one Protestant say, yeah, but penal substitutionary theory preaches. Mm. You know, it preaches, man. You know, recapitulation doesn't preach. But you can't pull the net at the end of the service. No. Well, that's just it, right? right. And, um, but again, and, and I, can see, I can completely understand that within the context of like an evangelical church because there's no liturgy. Um, you don't have a whole view of the creation, right? Liturgy does that. Liturgy does that. It gives you a sense that God is, is deeply invested in the whole of the cosmos, right? Not just you. It's not just about you. Right. 
It's about yeah. him making all things new, not right. making all new things. Which for us comes mm. out at its fullest <clears throat> at the great vigil of Easter. Right, yeah. yes, absolutely, the Feast of Feasts. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, part of, so much of it is cultural, right, between the East and West. And this is so difficult for an American, whether you're Catholic, Anglican, Evangelical, whatever, <coughs> is that they, they look at the East as Eastern tradition and Eastern Christians as just these bizarre people who don't get it who somehow weren't saved and didn't get the whole story, right? Yeah. And it's, it's because the two, the two cultures experienced completely different things, right? Yeah. They didn't speak the same language, mm -hmm. right? And they didn't experience the same things historically. Uh, so Eastern Orthodoxy never went through a Reformation. Yeah. It's, it's never had to have the challenge of a Reformation, right? And so doctrine's not codified in a catechetical way in Orthodoxy as it is in in the Latin West, right? It's not a catechetical tradition. There's no, there's no, nothing like the Catholic catechism no, in, no, in, in orthodoxy, right? Hmm. And so there didn't need to be a counter-reformation like Trent. Yeah. And it didn't go through the Renaissance. It didn't go through the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. right? Um, it wasn't, it, it isn't part of the whole democratic processes of jurisprudence that were born in the West, which all influences uh, Western Christianity's understanding of justice. Oh yes, yeah, justice. And, and yes, penal yeah. substitution. So, yeah. else, you know, Anselm, and you know, Saint Anselm, you know, living in the 12th century, he's a Frenchman who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it's it, all the Protestant thought. They don't know it. <laughs> it's based on Anselm's understanding of the atonement, right? Yeah. right? But it's about where did Anselm come from? He lives in a feudal society, right? Right, right, and, and that, that influences immensely uh, the medieval churches and the, the late Middle Ages medieval churches' understanding of atonement. Yes, right, which is just not ever part of the Eastern experience. Right, and so causes this big divergence. Yeah. yeah, so I think, uh, and instead of what will happen with the guy thumping you over the head with his King James is that you have to know that it's both and was going on in God's providence in the universal church. Right. Because God's providence, the two lungs of the church, are going through different experiences. Yeah. Right? And that gets very hard for us to have those type of conversations in the modern world because, A, we're ignorant about everything of history. Sure, yeah. And we just have to be right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And that's not how history works. And that's not how God's providence of charity works either. So, anyway. Yeah. 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 The, um, that, that was a good point to bring up, you know, God's sense of justice. Uh, because that's also something you, you don't hear a whole lot of in, in orthodoxy. Mm. And uh, I, I think it was St. Ephraim who said that, thank God he doesn't deal with us according to his justice, but uh, his mercy. Because the Psalms are full right, of that, right? Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Which also, and you know, we can't talk about this sort of stuff without talking about, um, you know, the Jesus prayer. Oh, yeah. Um, it's my it's, favorite prayer. It's central to to Orthodox asceticism, piety, the spiritual life. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a yes, sinner. Um, you know, have mercy on yeah. me, right? Um, don't be just with me. I don't want God to be just with <laughs> no, me. No, I want no, Him to be no. merciful with me, no. right? So. Um, and you know that that's something else too about orthodoxy. I think that is 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 unique. Is that 
Um, whereas in the West, particularly Middle Ages, you saw this, this divergence into these different traditions of, of, of piety, of the different orders within Catholicism. They were all unique because of their own emphasis upon the Religious this, orders. So the religious orders, yes. yeah. Um, we don't have anything like that in the Orthodox Church. A monk is just a monk, hmm. right? Um, right. So you don't have the Jesuit Dominican problem. No. Thank <laughs> God. Uh, right. right. Um, you know, so... Um, and everybody in the church is understood as um, having to take up the ascetic endeavor, right? I mean, we're in Lent right now, where, you know, Lent is just beginning. You know, in the 40 days of what we call Great Lent is a day of, of rigorous fasting, um, which I'm no, you know, expert or champion in, obviously. But um, it's a serious fast. I mean, or, every Orthodox is expected to take up the strict monastic fast for 40 days, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, interesting, I, you guys know I work at a Catholic school, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, all the teachers are talking about Lent and what they're giving up for Lent. You know, I'm giving up chocolates and swearing, <laughs> and I say, Corey, what are you giving up for Lent? And I joke, and everything, <laughs> you know. I gave up being nice. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, you know, I, I, you know, it's not true. Like, um, but, you know, I, they say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we fast for meat for 40 days, uh, all dairy products, animal products, um, even olive oil. Right, um, and if you're married, you're supposed to abstain from that intimate tips relations. Olive oil tips the scale, <laughs> right? You know, I don't know what's worse: giving up intimate relations or olive oil. I don't know. I don't know. But um, so it's 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 very different. And you know, I, I had a, uh, a professor at PC who was a Dominican priest, and the Dominicans themselves are known for you know, being very serious, and, you know, yeah, very ascetic, and, yeah. and you know, very rigorous in their own asceticism. And even he said he once he says, you know. Eastern Christians are just too serious. It was like a hundred days of fasting in in the in the, a year. Totally, so. yeah. I mean, you're looking at almost like more than a quarter of the year. You're you're fasting, right? Yeah, well, um, and again, in saying that, I I want to be as clear as I possibly can. I am not someone to look to for that. Right. Um, um, I know people. Who That's why we say the Jesus. Priest. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. why we do it. Yes. Right. And um, but um, spirituality, you know, life of of, of dying to oneself you know, is, is yeah. ever present in the Orthodox life. And so when you, when you say, Corey, the, um, <clears throat> the, the real conversation we would have um, with modern American evangelicalism is that Orthodoxy doesn't even touch things like pre, double predestination. No, right? we don't know what that is. I mean, and, I know what it and, is. And or, and or, you know, when did you meet Jesus? Yeah. Right. Let's talk a little bit about. That. Well, yeah, they do. They do ask me that. You know, some of them say, "Well, I say I decide I meet him every Sunday." Right. Right. Literally. <laughs> literally. They have, like, literally. Body and blood. And, they, and then they say, "Oh," you know, they roll their eyes, and you know, like, what, 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 "It's not what we mean." I was like, "Yeah, but that's what I mean." You know, that's what I mean. Right. Um, and that's what all the church fathers meant. Absolutely. Right. And so, um, and then you know, they ask questions like, "Well, how do you know you're saved?" I said, well, saved from what? Right? Um, I'm like, you're, you're asking me if I'm saved from, from the wrath of God. That's what you're asking me, aren't you? Right? I said, I don't think God judges us in his wrath or his justice. He judges us with his mercy. The whole, the whole reality of the incarnation is, is, is God's condescension and mercy to the world. That's what it is. Right? And so... Well, that's why Jesus is at the right hand. Right. Mm. And so... I said, but to answer your question, I said, I, I was saved in baptism. I'm being saved. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, 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 the bells go <laughs> off, right? 
And Regeneration. I say, right, yeah. I say, I'm being saved, and I hope to be saved. That's, 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 that's the only answer I have for you. Um, and, you know, they, they want more than that. Well, they want one saved, always saved. Right. From you. Yeah, that, that's what they want. And so that it's just not even part of the Orthodox vernacular. It's just, we take very seriously, you know, St. Paul's words, work out your salvation in fear, fear and, and trembling. trembling right. You know, the, the Christian life is a progressive life. You know, we're moving, also like St. Paul says, from glory to glory. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And we can't do that, you know, Orthodox would maintain, without par- participating in, the, in what we call the divine energies of God. Now, that's where we lose all Western Christians at that point, because they say, what does that mean? That sounds really weird. What do you mean God's energies? For some people, it might sound New Agey. It might sound pagan. Um, But in Orthodox understanding, we we distinguish between God's essence and his energies. Um, And we believe that the energies of God are uncreative. Grace is uncreated in the Orthodox understanding of grace, which is very different from the Western understanding. Much like the Book of Wisdom. Yes, absolutely. Um, And so uh, the people I found, believe it or not, Protestants don't seem to really care too much about that. It's the Thomist, I remember at PC, who had a real problem with that because Mm -hmm. they said, wait a second, grace is created, man. I said, that then you're not really participating in God, like St. Peter said, you had to. You're You're just participating in a created substance. Well, yeah, but we'll, but we'll also see the essence of God. I said, no, you'll only ever participate and behold the energies of God. You cannot ever properly see and apprehend the essence of God. You can't. Um, and that's, that's one of the, the unknown roadblocks, right? We, we, people look at the roadblocks between East and West as being, you know, papacy, stuff like that. And that's an issue, clearly. But I, I've never had... A serious debate about the papacy with anyone before. Hmm. It's, they talk about this stuff instead. They say salvation, the, the understanding of the inner life of God, right? The procession of the Holy Spirit. That's what they want to talk about. Because um, I think that's really where the real division lies. Once you have a, a problem in metaphysics, I mean, that's division is guaranteed. You know, you can you can work out logistics of church administration with anyone, right? Oh, absolutely. But um, you know, deep matters of theology, right? That that's something different. And when you're saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? You are saying something about the inner life of God, right? Um, and the Orthodox would say, no, He proceeds only from the Father. Right? The Father is the font and source of all divinity within the Godhead. Um, and sometimes there's no budge on that. But you know, to, to the credit though of Anglicans, um, Anglicans have always been willing to say, yeah, we can get rid of that. We don't need that. It's fine. Which would make total sense. Um, Yes. You don't separate yourself from the Bishop of Rome, for example, and then continue to hold on to things that were only there because the Bishop of Rome, right? So, um, and many of the Caroline divines were, were willing to say, yeah, we're, we're looking at this, and you know what? It doesn't really make a whole lot of yeah, theological sense. Andrews was, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, so yep. it's very interesting. Um, so there, there have been really serious attempts to, to talk about some of this stuff, and I think one of the attractions... Um, of orthodoxy for, for Western Christians is, is when they really start to understand the orthodox position, position on salvation. It, it really intrigues them. You know, it really intrigues them. Um, but it's, I don't want to give the impression either that it's just, you know, disgruntled Western Christians who are becoming orthodox, you know. And um, we have a gentleman right now in our parish who is a Russian Jew 
He's lived in America for about six years. You wouldn't know he's Russian. His English is flawless. He has no accent. Mm-hmm. I joke with him. I, I tell him that he's a spy. <laughs> um, his English is better than most native English speakers. But uh, smart guy. He's a lawyer. Um, he's here with his wife and his baby. His wife is Orthodox, um, but he's not. He was raised in a secular Jewish home in late Soviet Russia. And living in America, you, you know, especially as an Orthodox in America, you would think, well, everyone coming from Russia must have been Orthodox at some point. But he wasn't. He's come to America, and he's, instead of being interested in Catholicism or, or Protestantism, he's like, no, I'm interested in Orthodoxy, and he's becoming Orthodox. And he was an atheist most of his life. So um, it does happen that it attracts, you know, all sorts hmm. of different people. Right. So the, <clears throat> the ultimate crux of... Um, the Greek understanding of the, the economy of salvation is that we must have free will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? And so, yeah. therefore, uh, the reform view is incompatible yeah. to um, the, the thousand years right. before the separation of, of the Eastern understanding yeah. of how God interacts uh, with, with the Christian th- through the graces of baptism. Yes. I mean, I, I, I remind you know, some Reformed friends, the few that I have left, <laughs> um, that <laughs> reform, Reformed Protestantism is the only form of Western Christianity that was expressly condemned as a heresy in the Orthodox Church. Yes, it is. Hmm. By the Synod of Jerusalem in the late 17th century. Um, so, well, wait a second. What 1672, about, as I recall. That's right, 1672. And, um, yeah, so that... that I, <laughs> I was like kind of rubbing that in with them. They don't like it, but um, they, there was early attempts um, at communication between Lutherans and Orthodox, um, uh, two big theologians in early yes. 17th century with the Patriarch of Constantinople. Went out for almost 10 years, yeah. back and forth. And um, but again, it, it was it was it was not entirely genuine exchange. Um, you know, there wasn't a real willingness on the part of the Lutherans to. You consider the possibility that you know the Eastern Church had been right about many things. It was more, well, we just need an ally against Rome, and you guys seem to be the best option right now. Um, and I think by the end of the nearly ten-year period of conversation, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but the Patriarch of Constantinople said in so many words, um, "If you can't write any more in a spirit of just friendship, don't write any more anymore." Right, something along right. those lines. Because he was done. He's like, I just don't even know what you guys are talking about. Well, the, the, so. ir- the irony of the whole flow of, of Western Protestantism is that the most orthodox uh, Protestant of great substance was John Wesley. Yeah, he's very influenced by the Greek fathers. Right, yeah. and his, yeah. his, uh, his insistence on Arminian standpoint yeah. of free will justification right right which didn't it doesn't square with absolute Lutheranism and certainly not with I mean when when uh, Wesley uh, sent forth uh, Coke to America uh, to ordain Asbury as superintendent or bishop um, and he revised the Book of Common Prayer in the 39 articles he you know it's it's I always when I've taught this I always do it with a smile right so you know the the article on predestination. Wesley just eliminated the whole thing. Right. Just, <laughs> just hacked it out. Right. This is like gone. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, that, and that just speaks volumes yes. about 
you know, and uh, <clears throat> the Wesleyan understanding, yeah. which leads to the whole holiness thing, which is, you know, it, it's diverted from orthodoxy. Sure, but right. in, its, in its original genesis, it would have had a lot of touchstone yeah. to, yeah, mm. sure. to the Eastern position. Yeah. One other thing I would add, too, um, is when we just talk about theology, um, Orthodox commonly refer to, to, to dogmatic theology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't talk about systematic theology because right. we don't systematize anything. There's no system. Well, it's, no, it's no catechetical need right. to do it. No, there's no need to do it. I mean, to be fair, we have catechisms, but they're always small, they're local, they're, they're always di- slightly different according to... For, right, our, not universal. for our listeners, no universal catechism, yeah. before we go any further, we should offer up... But Definition, ex, an explanation of dogmatic theology versus systematic theology. Sure, yeah. um, in the case of systematic theology, uh, it's, it's this compartmentalization that takes place between you know, soteriology, pneumatology, ecclesi- Explain them to our audience. Yes, pneumatology, of course, is theology that relates to the Holy Spirit. Uh, soteriology is the theology of salvation. Um, and then, you know, so on and so forth. Ecclesiology is the theology of the church. Um, orthodoxy, again, because it, it doesn't think in terms of systems when it does theology. We just have the dogmas of the church, right? And everything flows from that. And the source of the dogmas is ultimately the, the ecumenical councils, right? That's where we get the dogmas from. Dogmas being ways of living, ways of Yes, ways, ways of, of, acting, li- ways of ways living of would certainly stem from dogma, for sure. Uh, but when we talk about dogma, we're, we're talking about you know the, the triune God. We're talking about the Church's belief about the hypostatic union, Christology, right? Christology. Christology. Um, everything flows from that. Everything, um, even the Church's understanding of Mary. Right? We don't have a separate Mariology, for example, in the Orthodox Church. Um, good Mariology will always be good Christology, um, and if it's not that, then it's not good Christology. And this is why, for example, Orthodox would criticize many aspects of. of um, Catholic views of Mary, right? L- less so the, the Assumption, right? Um, because there is a tradition of the Assumption in the East. Um, we've never really accepted one definitive position on that, although it's more common to speak of her dormition than mm-hmm. her Assumption, yeah. But the, we, we, don't, we don't have the objection to the Assumption that, for example, Protestants would. This idea like, well, only Jesus was assumed into heaven. He said, well, he wasn't assumed into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And there's a difference between ascending and being assumed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but assumption is not something that's unknown to Scripture, right? right. Um, Enoch was here, mm-hmm. and then just God took him, right? It didn't well, say that yeah. he died. It well, just said God yeah. took him. Elijah. Elijah right. as well. Elijah, right? right? And so assumption is there, but um, yeah. Yeah, and again, Anglicanism, <laughs> either by providence or accident, Right, dealt with both the assumption and the immaculate conception in that t- typical Anglican way. Right, so the, the the conception of Mary stayed on the calendar. Yeah, you know, and it wasn't called the immaculate conception in the medieval church. It was just the conception of Mary. The right. Mary. So it's still there. Yeah. No definition given to it. Right. It's there because it's part of the deposit of faith. Yeah. Right, and so it's it's in that realm. It's theological speculation. It's allowed. Right, there's never been a definition made of it, and um, same thing with the assumption. It's at Oxford University, the feast of the assumption never stopped being um, celebrated, mm. even after the Reformation. Wow, interesting, right? Yeah, that is. And uh, and of course, the great fudge in the, the, the modern Anglican prayer books, 
the Feast of Mary is moved to the 15th, of course, is the day of the Dormition of the Assumption. Yes, right. But it's called the Feast of the Saint Mary the Virgin. Yeah. And the collect says, classically Anglican, hmm. we thank you, Lord, that that you took the Blessed Virgin to yourself. Doesn't yeah. say if she died, doesn't say if she went to sleep, doesn't right. say, right? Very Anglican, but really very patristic. Sure. Right? Yeah. As opposed to the, to the, 1854 definition yeah, from Rome lot, about, right. about the assumption. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. again, there's a lot of there's touchstones there with orthodoxy on, yeah. those, on those two things that are just ignored by the rest of the Protestant world. Yeah. They're just ignored. They're not right. on the Lutheran calendar. Yes. Right. So, yeah. um, just to know that. And, and, you know, Mark had mentioned, you know, um, just a little bit ago, you know, how Orthodox would understand the church, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is similar to Catholicism in the sense that uh, it understands itself as being the church, you know, in the fullness of the church, and that divisions within Christianity are extrinsic to the church. They're mm. not intrinsic to the church, right? Um, you know, so it's it's for other Christians to become Orthodox, essentially, right? Mm. Which, um, you know, to, to Orthodoxy's credit, um, long before... You know, Rome had its ordinariate. You know, we were we were doing the Western Rite. You know, we were trying to, you know, allow a way for for Anglicans and Lutherans to come in. Tell, so tell the people watching what the ordinariate is. Yes. Yeah. Well, the ordinariate is um, is Pope Benedict, now deceased, now passed, um, Pope, Den- Pope Benedict the uh, effort to bring Anglicans, uh, disaffected Anglicans, back into Roman Catholicism by allowing them to retain. Um, their liturgical rites and their customs. Um, so, uh, but before they were doing it, we were doing it. So, yes, hundred years before. Not perfectly, yeah. but you know, but still, it was it was there. There was a willingness and a, and a charity there to to certainly do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I think that that maybe that's a place to end this on the economy. Is that uh, in in the world the largest Christian grouping is. It's a billion and a half Catholics. Yeah. There's 220 roughly million uh, Orthodox of all the various types, including the Assyrians and the... Yeah, the non-Chalcedonians. Non-Chalcedonians and uh, the Orientals. And then the third largest grouping in the world is Anglicans, 80 million people. And then everything else descends out into the Protestant world and all 50,000 sects, right? Right, right. So, so the vast, 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 vast majority of Christians in the world belong... To the three traditions. Yeah. But that's not the American perception of Christianity. No. At all. No, it really isn't. Right? It's that, that the vast amount of world, the vast amount of Christians in the world are like post-Civil War American Protestant Christians. Yeah. That's just how it's perceived. Yeah. And with almost no thought or understanding that that's not where most of the Christian world is. Right. Right. And so... Our three ecclesiologies have uh, enough in common where it really distinguishes it from the rest of, mm-hmm. of the um, and uh, the need for ordained priesthood. Yeah, right? is just not going to be compatible to to the um, other views of Christianity. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh- I think that brings us to the next big question that we have. And Mark, you alluded to it in your comment just now, where I think people of an evangelical and Protestant 
mindset and upbringing are very familiar, especially in the United States, yeah. of the idea of denominations. Right. And so two questions that an unfamiliar person might ask, and I will ask in their stead, so to speak, are one, is orthodoxy not just a denomination of Christianity? Mm. And two, does orthodoxy have denominations <clears throat> within it? Sure. Um, the short answer is no. Um, the second answer is a little longer. Um, I'll try to abbreviate it. But within orthodoxy, you have jurisdictions, hmm. if you will. Um, these jurisdictions are connected to the historic patriarchates. So either Constantinople, where the ecumenical patriarch is, um, or the patriarchate of Antioch, again, which, where my patriarch is. And then you would have the patriarchate of Jerusalem, which did have um, a presence here in the United States at one point until those churches that were once affiliated with the Patriarch of Jerusalem came under the, what they call the omnifor, or the, or the discipline of the Patriarchate of Constantinople. And then you have the Patriarchate of Alexandria, which um, works primarily in Africa. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, and then you have what they call the Junior Patriarchates, uh, which would be Moscow. Uh, and then you would have Serbia, Romania, um, I believe the Bulgarians would have their own patriarchate, and they have their own extensions or jurisdictions elsewhere in the world. Um, at present, if I'm not mistaken, the ecumenical patriarchate um, and the Moscow patriarchate, again, you're looking at a historic patriarchate and then a junior patriarchate, right, um, are kind of in lockstep with, with having the largest number of, of jurisdictions under them, and the jurisdictions themselves are headed usually by an archbishop or a metropolitan. Mm. Now, the difference being um, is that if you are a self-ruled jurisdiction, you will most likely have a metropolitan, mm. okay? Um, and by self-ruled, I mean that the original patriarchate has given you a certain amount of freedom to govern yourself where you are. So you can choose your own bishops, for example, ordain your own priests, have your own seminaries. You don't have to send them you know, to the other side of the world, for example. Um, the only thing you usually cannot do in a self-ruled um, archdiocese or jurisdiction is choose your own metropolitan. You can nominate candidates for metropolitan, but ultimately the patriarch will determine, and his synod will determine who the metropolitan will be. Now, if you're a member of a jurisdiction that does not have self-rule, but is still connected and under the authority of a patriarchate. Um, like take, for example, the Greek archdiocese here in the United States. It is not a self-ruled archdiocese. Um, it is a jurisdiction that is directly under the authority of the ecumenical patriarchate. So they don't have a metropolitan, they have an archbishop, okay? Um, and he answers to the ecumenical patriarchate. Um, and then you have the, the, the newer phenomena, um, which is very popular in some parts of the world of what they call autocephaly. Mm. These are mm. churches that are completely independent. They were part of a patriarchate, but they were given self-rule, and then they were eventually given complete and total autonomy to be what they are, where they are. Um, and the most popular example of this in the, here in the United States is the Orthodox Church in America. Mm. They have their roots in the Russian church, so their liturgy, their, uh, their music, 
um, th- their whole tradition really is Russian, mm. uh, but they consider themselves an American church, mm. um, and there's a lot of converts there as well. So, and English is the primary language of the liturgy. There, you don't hear a whole lot of um, Old Slavonic, for example, in, in in the Orthodox Church in America. So, no, we don't have denominations. Um, we don't have any breakaways, for example. Well, that's not entirely true. Yeah, no, no we, we have groups that eventually leave over minor issues, um, such as maybe the calendar, which we'll talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the adoption of the Gregorian calendar um, for some part of the Orthodox liturgical calendar, obviously not all. Some groups uh, about 100 years ago left, and they became what they call old calendarists. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and they're small groups. Um, but that's pretty much it. We don't have any breakaway groups um, that would be analogous to something like the Protestant Reformation, right? I mean, denominationalism is a Protestant phenomenon, right? So, At the same time, <clears throat> orthodoxy does not work like Roman Catholicism. No, right. No. It's the, the churches are they're interdependent, but they're independent of each other. Yes, the patriarch. So there's there's nobody that can tell another patriarch what to do. Even the ecumenical patriarch doesn't have any authority over any of those. Right. Um, I mean, his direct jurisdiction. Similar, yes. similar, but not. It's not an exact correlation to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and what used to be a functioning Anglican communion. Uh, he was the father of the family, but had no jurisdiction outside of the province of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. He's he's just a pivot. <clears throat> hinge that's used to, uh, and, he, and the orthodoxy doesn't hasn't for centuries even gathered on a regular basis in the episcopate as much as Anglicanism has. Mm. They simply haven't for seven yeah. or three hundred years. So, um, and there's there's much ethnicity that drives orthodoxy that's very mm-hmm. difficult to explain um, to an American Protestant. Yeah, um, that they're very ethnic churches, and so while they have, they would argue that. I would argue too that they are they have the same faith, almost the same liturgy, but they don't get along very well, and they can have lots of political turmoil. Yeah, the 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 the, the reality of of the nationalistic nature of modern Orthodox churches, um, you know, it's undeniable. You know, and we are kind of seeing that played out now on the geopolitical level, right, um, with things going on with Russia and and whatnot. Um, but, but even before, for example, Russia had gone into Ukraine, um, there was already a spat, if you will, going on between the Moscow Patriarchate and the Ecumenical Patriarchate over a group in Ukraine um, mm. that was previously schismatic and heretical, and then the Ecumenical Patriarch came in and essentially made them orthodox, so to speak, and replaced um, the canonical church in Ukraine, which was under Russia. So there's a whole lot of intrigue and innuendo going on there. But, um, but, but all of that plays to um, this unfortunate uh, knack that Orthodox have for um, prioritizing their ethnicity over Orthodoxy, right? Um, I mean, it doesn't negate the reality of the church, right, of the Orthodox church. Um, for, for the most part, even as Mark said correctly, I, w- I would agree, um, there are small variations in the liturgy, depending where you go, but they're small. You know, they're, they're minor. Um, we're not talking about a situation, for example, where, um, let's say in Catholicism, where you go to most Roman Catholic churches and you're getting the Novus Ordo, and then if you really want to go to a Latin Mass or the, or right. the Old Roman Rite, you've got right. to travel 30 miles, right? Yeah. Because it's a very different liturgy, right? Um, there's nothing like 
like, like that like going on. But, um, but I mean, I'll give you another example, for example. Um, among Greeks, and even Antiochians, right, um, confession has become something almost like the forgotten sacrament, right? Um, but among the Russians, among the, with the Slavs, um, it's ever-present. And even the idea of uh, being prescribed penance in confession is very present in the Russian tradition, where um, you don't see penance prescribed among Greek clergy or Antiochian clergy. It's very uncommon. It's very uncommon. So that's, a, that's, that's one of those little differences, hmm. right? Um, does it change the understanding of confession? No, not necessarily, right? Um, it's still a necessary sacrament. Um, even if it's underused and not entirely appreciated. Um, but you certainly see a, a stricter, um, more austere understanding of the Christian life among Russians. Right? They're, they're very serious. Um, and to a certain degree, they, they, they've had to be serious because they had to survive the last hundred years, right? I, so I think that's the biggest part for our, probably our audience <clears throat> and people aren't familiar with orthodoxy at all is that you know, as a, as a Latin and as a historian looking to the East, from my perspective, there's, there's this ability to stay archaic yeah. in, in ways that don't represent the evolution of the world. So, for instance, the most powerful entity in orthodoxy isn't the patriarch of Constantinople, it's the patriarch of Moscow. Yes. Because the overwhelming amount of Orthodox in the world are Russian Orthodox. Yeah. And so even though yeah. they're a junior patriarchy, they have they really can make the dogs the, their tail can do, wag the dog. Mm. You know, and so, uh, but because of their ties to the patriarchal jurisdictions as defined by the councils, um, so eventually there aren't going to be any Christians in in um, Istanbul and in Turkey, and yet the patriarch are many now. You know, so how are you going to have an ecumenical patriarch when there's no Christians? Yeah. And under mm. Turkish law, that person has to be a citizen yeah. of that country. So there's, there's this, and I don't mean this as uh, to be pejorative, but there's this, traditions can create archaic things that aren't necessarily necessary or even good for the common good if the church's goal is to evangelize the world. So mm. There's, there's mm. all these challenges. So orthodoxy, I think we've... we've Shown great affection to, to uh, I have great affection to orthodoxy. But, of course, uh, it's great challenges to orthodoxy, sure. trying to break out from its Slavonic and Eastern um, socio-political and geographical boundaries. Two thirds of all orthodox are found in the old Russian Empire. Yeah, and so uh, it's just the reality. Unlike Anglicanism, the only thing that's close to that's the Roman Catholicism is Anglicanism. It's spread all around the world because of the British Empire. Yeah. And so, um, so all these things come into the realities of how all this stuff functions. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask yeah. for a break. Can we take a break? Yes, we can take another quick break, <laughs> yes, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with the big Easter question. All right, Mark's back from his quick break, as are the rest <laughs> of us. And thank as you. I... Thank you for your mercy. <laughs> of course. All Anything about, for you. mercy. So as we were just talking about, um, the big question that I think gets asked every time Easter rolls around in the Western calendar is, why is Orthodox Easter always a week after Western Easter? What's up with that? Corey, do you care to explain? 
Yeah. Uh, do I care to explain it or want to explain? <laughs> well, you don't really have a choice. So can you can you um, explain it for us? This is always an awkward and, and, and sometimes a silly conversation. Um, and I don't say that because of, of, of Western Christians asking me why. It's it's it's, it's like an inter or inter orthodox thing. It's, as I had said a little while ago, we have old calendarists, hmm. right, um, in the Orthodox Church, right, these small groups, and they live on they live and die on this issue, hmm. you know, the calendar. And I'm not I'm not I'm not negating its importance. Um, I'm not saying it's frivolous by any means, but I mean they they'll risk it all on the calendar, right? Um, so. In short, in brief, the, the, the reason why um, Orthodox Easter, or what we commonly call Pascha, um, is after Western Easter uh, is simply because we're on two different calendars liturgically, right? Um, while that's only liturgical now, it used to be the case that this was the way the Western world actually dated history and time. Actually measuring right? time was yeah. different, yeah. right? You know, and so um, Orthodox for one part of their calendar are on what we call the Julian calendar, which literally has its roots in Julius Caesar, right? Um, and the Julian calendar was the calendar of the Roman Empire, which means it was also the calendar of the ancient church. Um, it was the means by which the church at Nicaea, the first council, ecumenical council, had determined um, when Pascha or Easter would be celebrated. So it would always be celebrated after Jewish Passover, okay, or right around the same time. And in, I, I believe it was in the late medieval period, uh, just after the Reformation, I think it was Gregory the 13th, mm-hmm. Pope Gregory the 13th, who had decided that the Julian calendar um, was not entirely consistent with findings in modern science, mm-hmm. right, and how we understood how mm-hmm. the solar system worked and, and the rotation of the sun and so on. And so, he had proposed a change. Um, for example, there are too many leap days in the Julian calendar, right? Yeah. Um, and so it was decided, and even Protestants eventually, you know, latched onto this and they made the changes as, as well, um, that a new calendar would be produced, which is the Gregorian calendar. And um, for a variety of reasons, one of them chief being the fact that at that point in time, you know, the Orthodox world was separated from Western Christianity. Um, not just because of what took place between the two churches, but because they, they literally, physically were separated because the Ottomans wouldn't allow them to interact with the West. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, um, so that was a problem. And so the Orthodox Church remained on the Julian calendar. And then it was proposed in the early 20th century by some Orthodox to at least partially consider adopting um, the Gregorian calendar from the solar aspect of it. Right, the solar cycle of the, hmm. of the Gregorian calendar, which, which they did. Um, they did accept that in 1922, I believe, um, at, at something like a, a pan-Orthodox council. It was a small gathering, but it was the first serious gathering of Orthodox bishop in quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and to talk about this issue, right, among other things, canons and so on and so forth. But, um, and so it was decided that we would accept one part or aspect of the Gregorian calendar which is why Orthodox and Western Christians celebrate Christmas in the West at the same time, right? December 25th. Hmm. Um, but we continue to hold on to the lunar aspect of the Julian calendar. And that's why Orthodox Pascha or Easter is always after 
um, Latin or Western Christian Easter. And sometimes it's not just a week. Sometimes it can be four weeks yeah. Yeah. after, right? I mean, which is always... Is, whenever is, the equinox. Whenever the equinox coincide, right? right. And that's when yeah. it happens. And so, uh, which is always kind of funny because people always ask you, like, you know, I get messages and texts uh-huh. from people. Oh, you know, happy Easter. Christ is risen. I'm like, nope, second Sunday nope. for Lent for me. <laughs> nope. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm not so happy right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, joy, joy, joy. Well, people always ask, say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? It's like, well, we just we have a different calendar, and you know, you have to explain it to them, and you know, it's 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 funny. Um, I've been doing it at work, and you know, they say, oh, you know, Ash Wednesday. I said, we don't do Ash Wednesday, you know. Um, he said, oh, you don't? Well, when, when does Lent start for you? I said, no, we're about a week apart this this year, you know. So, your Palm Sunday, I mean, excuse me, my Palm Sunday is going to be your Easter this year. So. Yeah, which is good for me because school vacation, uh, spring vacation for me is going to be my holy week. So that means I get work off and I get to go to all the services of the church. So, nice. It's a really yeah. good conversation though, because <clears throat> again, the average person doesn't have a clue that history literally changed with the Gregorian calendar. Yeah. So, so when you do research, like so today, we're doing research. We're going to say the year, the year King Uzziah died was well, changed by the Gregorian. Yeah, calendar. yeah, right. Right. So when you do research and you go back into pre. 16th, 17th century documents, the dates don't coincide. So you have, you have to retranslate the dates to the modern Gregorian calendar. Yeah. So it's like, so literally when um, really the, when England accepted it, and they didn't, England didn't accept it right away. Sure. It was a lapse of a Understandable. part of a yeah. century. But once England did it, because it was the most powerful uh, empire and the English language dominated the Western world, to coincide for all the leap years, the Julian calendar, yeah. they eliminated like 130 days of history were just gone. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you went from <laughs> whatever date to this date. Yeah. Now here we are. Yeah, it's so strange to wrap your mind around something right. like that. Right, so literally yeah. Yeah. That, that time ceased to exist. Yes. And, <laughs> and, you know, the Western world's been... But obviously it's, it's more accurate. It, it, it's precise about the rotation of the Earth and, yeah. and its cycle. So, yeah. Yeah, the Gregorian calendar is certainly astronomically a superior calendar, right? But the reason the Orthodox also hang on to it for the dating of Easter is, is, is again, because we have this fidelity to tradition and we want to be faithful to the councils, right? And so... um, Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) But but we don't like change. Um, And and at at this point, I think in the history of Western culture, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, People sometimes say, well, you're a little petrified, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck. I'm like... I'm grateful for that being stuck uh, right now. Um, yes. We're okay. Yeah. We're okay. And it's just not that big of a deal. No, it isn't. I, I, I don't. No. I, I see Orthodox to... really get into this calendar debate sometimes. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Like, guys, well, Western I mean, Christians. From, from say, offside, it's not Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It's like, what's the big deal right. if your brothers celebrate Easter yeah. or whatever day? It's yeah. It just has nothing to do with it. No. No. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny because you... Like take the Bolshevik Revolution for example, right? The October Revolution. You said Bolshevik, right? Yeah, Bolshevik. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, we call it the October Revolution, 1917, right? But if you understand that Russia at that time was still in the Julian calendar, it actually took place in November. Yeah, right. the November right. Revolution. So right, right. That's a, it's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. You know, but that's not how it's taught in school when you learn about it. No, no, no. no. It, wouldn't, so, you know, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Uh, but most people don't even know that. Yeah, you know. You know, what's the Julian calendar? Well, don't, we don't even get into it, but trying to explain to a person how we actually figure out the date of Easter, that'll give yeah. everybody a headache. 
No, gosh, I, <laughs> I can't even it explain is. it in an intelligible yeah, you know, the, the way. The tables are in the back of the print book, yeah, right? Yeah. And you sit and they go, arr, 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 and yeah. I go, I'm just so glad to list it out to like 100 years after I'm dead because I, yeah. I know when he's <laughs> going to be celebrated. Yeah. yeah, you need one of those big um, cork boards with a bunch of pieces of string and, and pins that you pin mm. up and you hit it. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think after the year 2800, um, Orthodox Easter and, and uh, Western Easter will, no, will never again coincide. They'll never be on the same day hmm. after that, which is interesting. But it's always fun, too, when they, they do fall on the we same day. We get the attention by then. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. But it is always fun when the, when the two do coincide. Um, I, I do, I, and I'm not the sole person that's gushy about ecumenism or anything like that, but it is always fun when we are celebrating the, the, right. the resurrection of Christ on the same Sunday. Yeah. Right. You know, it's nice. But it's not a ditch for division, obviously. No, there's bigger issues. No. Yeah. It's bigger issues, in my opinion. And, and some Orthodox don't like me saying that. You know, they say the calendar is the issue, you know, but... Yeah, I, watched, I, I, read, a, I read a thing. Then I watched a documentary on the old calendar, uh, Russians, Orthodox Russians, and they all live in these hills and mountains, and it's really interesting. This, was, was it the old calendar, or was it the old rite? Yeah, it might have been the old right. The old right, yeah, the but old believers. Old believers. Old believers, yeah, yeah they're old, different. Dead, but they are on the old calendar. Like they're on, definitely yeah. on the old calendar. Dead yeah. serious. Very serious people. I mean, Very serious people. Literally, like, uh, we'll, live in, we'll live in huts and hills if you can't even find us. Yeah, and they had good reason, you know, over the last century to well, not the, be found. the Bolsheviks, you know? right? Oh, absolutely. They, 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 we kind of refer to them as, as the Russian Amish. I was just going to say, yeah. they sound like the Amish. You know, yeah. There's some in Alaska, too, in fact. Yeah, there are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very interesting group of people. Yes. Um, very serious. Yeah. Yep. So it's, you know, you know we, kind of, we kind of joke about people like that, but we have something to learn from them. Oh, they're, they're admirable. In, in this bizarre world that we live in they're now. Admirable. You know, uh, they live a very natural lifestyle, you know, and the, the family is at the center of everything they do. Oh, well, I Everything Sam, they do. Isn't it true to some extent about... The Amish, the Mennonites, the Huttites, sure, and the even the Mormons to some extent, right? right. I mean, imagine if a Christian families actually live with, with a, a moral ethic the Mormons had, yeah, <laughs> right. So I think your point is well taken. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's that's a lot the to be learned. You. You yeah, know, and uh, I think that was a very good explanation. Depending upon who you talk to, that that conversation could go on for a long time. So that's, oh, why, that's why Corey gets months out of work at a time because he has to be <laughs> praying yeah. when his yeah. students, his students, yeah, he's like, <laughs> I, I, uh, I play the, the religious exemption. Kind of, <laughs> you know, well, I have nope, done that. Sorry, you know, different I have, calendar. I have had to do that. You know, in oh, the past, yeah. I say, you know, I, I can't work Good Friday. What do you mean? We already have it off. What are you talking about? You have it off. My Good Friday is two weeks from now. I need Thursday off and I need Friday off. And that's tough when you're speaking to a, a Catholic. They don't understand that they're an Orthodox. Yeah. Sex. yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> Wait you till know. they find out about Orthodox summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard, you know. I mean, it's it's, it's a long summer. It's <laughs> much. Know? It's much much longer. There's no summer school for me. Yeah, our summer days are 28 hours long. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Oh boy. So interesting issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all of that, Corey. Of course. I think. The it's been dis- a fun conversation. It has, it, and I think we've learned a lot for sure, and hopefully mm-hmm. our viewers will learn a lot as well. So. And I think, I think we should really finish with a reflection on Easter. As we're not Jewish, though. As God willing, you're not Jewish. No. Just to be clear, we, you I covered the Muslim. Orthodox, and they say Jewish. That's so. I have a cross on. 
You know, like, oh, uh, we're, we're beyond that, Corey. Oh, we, yeah, that's, know, not, that's not going to help you. <laughs> little attention goes a long <laughs> right. way, doesn't yes. it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that, that, that's quite all right. Quite all right. Um, lost my train of thought. Easter. We were talking about Easter. We would all agree that Easter is the most important part of the Christian year for us. And we don't really live consistent with that. I think we have to fight a lot to maintain the joy of the resurrection. And so that's my question for us to reflect on here for a few minutes is how do we how do we keep Easter in its place of importance mm. in our lives, in the church year? And how do we maintain that joy? While you think about that, I'll just read an excerpt from the Nicene Creed that I pulled. Really, to not forget that the resurrection is real. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. I think for the three traditions that we, we are mostly speaking about, we don't have a Roman Catholic here, but we have been so influenced by Protestant America mm. that Lent just simply does not have the bite that it had for generations yeah. in, in ethnic um, pieces of Catholicism. Lent, and again, Lent was a major, massive piece of the Book of Common Prayer, it just, and of course in Catholicism, and obviously in Orthodoxy, but it's not in Protestantism in America. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's just like we've talked about before, Easter and Christmas just pop up in evangelical life. Mm -hmm. But there's no, there's no specific preparation for either thing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are, you know, there are some <clears throat> Protestants that dabble in Lent Methodists and Presbyterians to some extent, but never to the full course that we're we're talking about. And, and free church, forget it; it's just not part of anything. Yeah. And so Easter loses its it, 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 we lose the majesty of the empty tomb because we haven't been through the disciplines, starting you know in the Latin tradition from Ash Wednesday on, mm. right? And so. We've talked about this, you know, trying to pass it to our own folks. It's just more, it's just some kind of drudgery they endure for 40 years, but 40, 40, 40 days. But, and so the, just the awe of the empty tomb gets lost. Yeah. It just gets lost. And this, it's hard to have joy when you, you're not able to put in perspective, my gosh, the incarnate God became man lived and died and rose for us so that we can have eternal life mm. yeah, and be with him <clears throat> forever in his presence of the beatific vision. It's like, if, if that really was at the core of our daily existence, we would not live the way we live. Yeah. Somehow the idea that there's no glory without suffering is just completely lost on American culture. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's a recent thing. I think that's been a problem for a long time. Yeah, I agree with yeah. Um, Lent does not speak to the, the individualistic nature of American society. No. It just doesn't. Easter can, because it's all about joy. And 
individuals love joy. And a bunny. And a bunny, right? And eggs and candy and stuff like that. Um, but I always look forward to, to Great Lent. Um, it, it's where, at least for me being Orthodox, I mean, I experience a, a, a breadth of, of different services in the church throughout the course of every week. Um, once Lent gets going, I mean, you're in church a lot. Yes. You know, you're in church all and, the time. And it's, it's wonderful. Now, in saying all that, it's not supposed to necessarily be wonderful, right? You, you, it should, there should be mortification and, and, you know, repentance and whatnot. Um, but, I, I, you know, and I don't want to necessarily go off topic here, but, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen this whole uh, so-called revival thing that's taking place in, in, in the Midwest or wherever it is. Yes. <laughs> um, I've never been a fan of revivalism. Um, even when I was a Protestant, and looking at it now in perspective, That's why you're lost? Sure, right. <laughs> and so, um, but it, it's it's so interesting that it's happening now when the, the largest percentage of Christians in the world are observing Lent, right? Which is about repentance. It's not about revival. Lent is about repentance, and so. I've been going back and forth with some other, you know, some people, and um, <clears throat> and, and and they said, "Well, why are you so skeptical?" I said, "Look, at if this, whatever this is that's going on out there, if it's not producing real repentance and dying to oneself every day, and I just don't mean right now during whatever is going on out there, but for the rest of their lives, it's a fake. It's a fake. It's not real. It's something. Who knows where it's from? Quite frankly." Especially if you look at the history of revivalism, I mean, it produces more bad fruit than it does good fruit, right, in my opinion. But um, I'm very skeptical of it. You know, so I said, it's Lent. I'm going to focus on repentance and not revival, whatever you mean by that when you say that, right? And so um, that's what Lent is about. It's about repentance. Right? Well, it, it's again, about going into the desert. It, you know, when you are not emerged immersed in liturgical life right then revival makes all kind of sense because there there is nothing but the routine of the exact same thing that yeah. you do every single week in church right right and so and, and <clears throat> therefore it becomes somewhat of a show that has to be outdone emotionally each mm -hmm. week mm -hmm. right so you have this need for revival yeah right it, it's it's totally counterintuitive to the catholic tradition with the smaller c here yeah yeah that, you know, in baptism, we already are born anew. We have all the revival, all the grace we need. Yes. We have to activate it by faith. Right. But you don't activate it because somebody's playing the guitar or singing <laughs> a specific song or playing the drums. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to totally poo-poo that, that um, God can move in time and space. Uh, but we know from American experience. So there was the, the first great awakening, the second sure, great right. awakening. Whatever that means. I'm, right. I'm not sure what that really means. Right. Um, awoke what? Changed what? What did it, yeah. what, what did it really change? Yeah. Right? The, the fact <clears throat> is, the truth is already changeless. Yes. So it, it doesn't need sparks. Right. It, it just needs to be lived. Right. And that's, again, like you, it's a hard selling point yeah. in this culture. Yeah, as with the case at Asbury, the Asbury Revival is what we're talking about here for the listeners. And probably 
it may or may not be still going by the time that this episode airs, but yeah, I, I would agree that typical of much evangelical worship, it being devoid of the structure and the forms of historic church tradition, you end up having to invent and emote a lot yes. of what we see <clears throat> taking place commonly amongst revivals and even just amongst large worship services. And the position I take Modern is... Modern Christian concerts. Uh, yeah. Exactly, is what is what they often amount to. But I I, I try to be charitable. Oh, I absolutely. would say, you know, if, if good things, God will certainly use it to enact some good in, in people's lives. And if that's the case, then, then so be it. Um, but like you said, Corey, it, without true repentance in people's lives, if they just go back home unchanged after everything is over, then yeah. what good was it really for? Yeah. At least, I think at least, as, cler- <clears throat> as clergy, we need to be able to see What's their generation? College kids now? Z's, X's, P's, what are they? Zoomers. Zoomers. At least, at least there's these young people who are, by doing what they're doing, there's a statement being made, right? That the feckless, empty world they live in isn't getting it done for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something. Yeah. Right? Now, I hope it draws them to something fuller towards the Catholic faith in the fullness of God's revelation of the church's ecclesial life than just um, you, got a, you get a little bit of a high and a fix from gathering and playing some songs. But mm-hmm. At least they're saying something to, to the world. Absolutely. And, 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 and uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of hope that it will bring renewal to the Wesleyan tradition in America, but um, at least it's something <clears throat> I think you're right. God can use anything to his glory. Absolutely. Uh, The last part that I'd just like to finish with is going back to Easter. Mark, you wrote an article for our church newsletter, which will have been released at this point, that I uh, I found moving, a reflection on the resurrection. And when you were reflecting on your father, just reminding us— Are you supposed to be able to do this all crying now? (laughs) Oh, I apologize for that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Yeah, yeah. Just I, what I wanted to say anyway is re- reminding us of the reality that the resurrection is real for each and every one of us if we are in Christ. And when we forget that, then Easter doesn't really do a whole lot for us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, just to sum that up, I said, you know, I based it on the common two pieces of the two creeds. You know, uh, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come everlasting in the Apostles' Creed, but um, we look for the resurrection, the dead, the life, the world to come, is how the Nicene Creed ends. And I, I just make the point, you know, um, my father will be have been 12 years uh, very soon, and it was shortly after he died. You know, I had said the Nicene Creed all these times as a layman and as a priest leading worship, and you, you really tend to say it, not that you don't believe it, right. but it's very academic when you say it. Yeah, sure. But when my dad died, who was the most influential male force in my life, the, the promise that God gives us in Christ for the resurrection and the hope you have in it took on a whole new meaning. Yeah. And so when I go and say my prayers at his grave now, I cling to the words mm. of the creed. And that's what Easter's all about. Yeah. Right? Right. And uh, I, I, 
<clears throat> it takes that jo- if it takes that jostling of a priest, you can imagine how much more of a jostling it takes of the average rank and file person in America to ever really grasp mm-hmm. grasp the power and the love of the resurrection. Yeah. 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 Certainly. I mean, I um, in the in the Orthodox Church, you know, we we always sing the Paschal hymn. You know, Christ is risen from the dead, mm-hmm. trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Yeah, so you exalt it. Yeah, you know, and you know, there's always that accompanying icon of, of Christ descending into Hades, into death, and he's reaching for Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. And, that, and then all the Old Testament saints behind him, right? right. All those yeah. who have been in the bosom of Abraham, right? Right. right. Not in hell, right? They're, they're in Hades, they're in death, right? right? Yeah. Sheol. Yeah, Sheol. So um, it's very powerful. It's very it is. Powerful. That wonderful, awesome, and I've, I've used it. I, I try to use it every six or eight years so people forget. But Chris Austin's great homily. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, and just, it uh, just brings tears to my eyes every time mm-hmm. I think about that. You yeah. know, the creator, Adam remembers that voice. Yeah. Where art thou, Adam? Yeah. And here he is again to free him from, yeah. from Hades. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's powerful stuff. what the, our faith is all about. Everything yeah. we proclaim as believers comes down to that night. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, and our churches aren't even full on those nights, are they? No, well... Yours is more full uh, ours, ours is. Yeah. yeah. But, but Not like to be fair, be. that that's the fullest. <laughs> right? I mean... Because here's the thing. I mean, the reality of the resurrection... Every Sunday is the resurrection. Is that every Sunday is the resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for example, sometimes people, you know, visit an Orthodox church on a Sunday, and they'll say, like Catholics or, you know, even Anglicans, they'll say... You guys don't kneel that often on Sunday. I said, no. Why would we, we kneel on Sunday? We st- it's the resurrection. Yeah. Mm. We stand in our prayer book now. Right. People didn't like it. Yeah. But, but that's what you do on Sunday. It's, the early it's, church never kneeled outside of right. that Lent. Yeah. It's, it, every Sunday is a celebration of the eighth day, the new creation. The octave, right. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so um, you know, that's what's going on there. Right? It's, it's that ever-present reality of, of the death of death. Because right? that's the real enemy. With your sting. Yeah, like St. Paul says. And yeah. so, um, and, and that's entirely consonant with what we were discussing earlier, you know what I mean? With, at least with the Orthodox positions, that the real enemy, the real problem is death. Right? It's death. What, what, mankind's whole existence is a life of tragedy and anxiety that surrounds his fear of death. Absolutely. Right? And when you are afraid of death, you cannot be truly human. It has to be taken away from you. Or joyful. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it's, I've always, I've always, I always love the the, incident, the, um, the the instance in John's Gospel where you know Jesus is speaking to people and he, he's, he's implying to them that somehow yeah, you might be alive physically, right, but unless you participate in my body, in my blood, right, in the flesh of the Son of Man, you're not alive. Yes, you eat, you drink. You procreate, you do other things that the body does, but you're actually dead right now, and you don't even realize it. You're dead spiritually, yeah. dead. right? Um, and Pascha, Easter, it, it's about being alive, like, like Irenaeus says, like a, the glory of a human being being fully alive for the first time in his or her life. That's what it's about. Amen. Right. Absolutely. And, and it, and it's not, it's not a symbol, it's not a metaphor. It's real. Literal. You can you you can 
I always love telling people, so you, you, you can go and see where Muhammad is buried. You can go and see where the Buddha is buried. You, can, you could even say you could go and try and find Moses maybe. But you can look for Jesus, but he's not there. He's not there. Right? Um, that perplexes all our yeah. adversaries, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, you know, it does. They pop up at this time of year, every right, all the PBS specials and everything else about yeah. why Jesus didn't really rise from right. the dead. Right, he was just a prophet or you know, a sage or a yes, good man. He, yes, he know. did. Yeah, it's the only it's the only reason why we're even still talking about this. Right. You know, 20, 2023. It's the only right? reason why we have Western civilization. That too. Right. Right. And so it's how we mark time. Yeah. Right. And then they, they love that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's always interesting when I you know I teach you know civ courses and I, I always deliberately avoid using B C E and C E. And I yeah. say BC and AD. And the kid, of course, the kids today, the young people today, they don't know what that really means. That's incredible. Because they were never taught it. Wow. Um, and I say, well, BC is before Christ, and AD is the, is the Latin, Anno oh, Domini, Domini, right? And so, well, what does that mean? It's the year of our Lord. The Lord and they, oh, oh, like Jesus. I say, <laughs> yes, the Lord of history, time, and space, of all things seen and unseen. <laughs> That's what that means, right? right. Um, and I said, my colleagues cannot avoid that by just changing the language. And I said, and even when they do change the language, common to what? I common to Christ. <laughs> you can't avoid it. Right? I can remember writing a paper at Yale. Um, my, my least favorite degree, Yale Divinity <laughs> School. And um, I refused to do it, right? So yeah. everything would be AD, BC. Yeah. The professor scratched it through. Yeah. And I went up to him after... I said, you can flunk me. I said, don't ever scratch out that again on paper I write. Yeah. I said, I don't care if you flunk me. It's a woman. She's looking at yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Like, who you are. But must have been my Irish, my Scot-Irish must have. Right. My, I, my ear was up, so yeah. she didn't mess, with my, didn't mess with my papers after that. Yeah. And I'm like, we're in a Christian school. Yeah. Right, in theory. I said, don't scratch that on my piece of paper ever again. Right. That's not a very hard thing to do, but that's what we lack for, for gumption and for faith in this sure. culture. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Mm-hmm. Well, Rector, I think, did we accomplish what you wanted to do? We certainly did. And I think we finished with an important reminder for all of us this Easter season. So thank you both, gentlemen, for joining us today. Corey, thank you especially for your kindness and your help and your wisdom over these last couple of episodes. We've both learned very much. Well, (laughs) your closest approximation to it. We appreciate that if that's what you're able to provide. But do my best. I have uh, my friendship with Corey, which has been like um, maybe a little brother to me for a long time. I've learned so much. When Corey became Orthodox, it's... It's been, I've just been able to embrace much fuller my own Christian faith by by having this person who walks on the other side of the river. And I just want to thank you for that. Oh, of course. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll you know, share with you guys and, you know, the, the viewers that uh, in part my, my becoming Orthodox was because of a friendship that Mark had with my priest who mm. chrismated me and received me into Orthodoxy, into the church, Father Isaac Crow. Great man. Saintly man. Blessed memory. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So even Mark was a part of my becoming Orthodox. Yeah. 
You still owe me the money for that. Yeah, right, you know. <laughs> we'll figure that out later. <laughs> but thank you again, Corey. We've both learned a lot. And to our viewers, I hope that you've found this informational and encouraging as well. Thank you again for watching. Once again, we remind you, please like and subscribe to us on your viewing or listening app of choice. Every little bit helps, and it has gone a great way to growing this humble podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you next time. God bless.